one. And we are oh, come on. And we are recording this fucking computer. Dr. Dale Comstock. Been on here God knows how many times. I'm not even going to introduce you. Everyone knows who you are now. I don't even need to introduce you. I kind of feel like introducing you is a little bit of an insult that, you know, um, I will say, I don't know if you got that message last night, but I, I found an episode or a clip of you and I, and obviously it's from you, not me. Somebody uploaded on YouTube five months ago and it's got 200,000 views. Oh, really? <laughs> Where the fuck are my views? Like it's, I get it. I'm banned from YouTube, but I just commented and I don't mind when people upload. I really don't because it's free advertising and I'm permanently banned from YouTube. But I just commented, I was like, dude, it's cool if you upload this. I was like, can you just credit a channel? And like people will plug, they'll, they'll upload an episode. I've seen it done before. They'll upload an episode with you of mine, which I don't mind. And then in the description, they'll be like, hey, like subscribe to my Patreon. And I'm like, you mother, you cocksuckers. And, uh, <laughs> like this, that's, those are my views. Poaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, you, fu-. but it's, it's also 200,000 views. I mean, that's about $1,000 worth of advertising. So. I don't know. I guess I'll take it, but um, pretty interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's um, but last week we did the 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 bodyguard episode, which was very well received, wi- widely as the best episode I've done with you. So, I'd imagine it's going to be about a week before I find it on YouTube with a million subscribers by some cocksucker. But this week is uh, well, if you want to do it this week, um, is another Instagram post of yours that I'd seen forever ago, and it was what looked like a duffel bag what looked like the most suspicious duffel bag ever if i brought it to an airport i'd still be in guantanamo and you talked about it being the burrito bomb and that's been another one that's been on my to-do list forever is literally on my daily to-do list it hasn't been checked off for like six months is dale burrito bomb episode so that's kind of what i want to ask you about today is what was the burrito bomb all right, so what is the burrito bomb? It's actually an IED. Um, so this goes back to the 2015, 2016 um, mercenary era that I was in when I went to Yemen. <clears throat> I was part of a uh, strike team, 11-man strike team. Um, I won't go into all the specifics of how we ended up there, but basically we were um, – supporting the United, uh, the government of the United Arab Emirates um, in their global war on terror, and uh, particularly in several countries, but uh, this particular one happened to be in Yemen on this incident. And uh, so let me just kind of give a backstory on what's happening, what was happening, what's probably still happening in Yemen. So, um, you know, the whole country basically collapsed. Um, you have different factions there. Uh, you have the Houthi rebels that are uh, Houthis that are su- supported by the Iranians um, that are fighting the Arabs, Saudi Arabians. You've got uh, you literally have Al Qaeda there. They call them Al Qaeda, Al Cap, ACAP, Al Qaeda Arabic Peninsula. So AQAP, um, quite a large number of them there. They're right out in the open. Um, they control a lot of Aden, the capital, um, the port city of Yemen. And I mean, they're literally manning all the intersections. In fact, the United, <clears throat> the UAE Army occupied the airport, the only airport they have there. And um, they actually occupied it with all their vehicles, all their stuff. They're, you know, mounting, if you want to call it operations from there. But guess who controlled the, the vehicle entry points? Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda checkpoints controlled the entrance to all to the airport. There was Holy occupied. shit. Yeah, so think about that for a minute. And so... What happened was um, early on <clears throat> when the Emiratis got involved, um, you know, they, they set up their FOBs there and right off the bat, they took a huge BBID at one of their gates and it just obliterated a whole lot of their soldiers. And that was the punch in the nose that told them, okay, we don't want to fight. Well, you know, we, can't we just all get along while we're here for a while? And so that's kind of what happened. It was like, you don't bother us. We don't bother you type scenario. And so the Emiratis were able to, <clears throat> to travel, you know, around, you know, with impunity. Um, you know, nobody harassed them, um, but they still had uh, they still had their objectives. And so their objectives wasn't necessarily to fight the Houthis, um, nor was it really to target uh, Al Qaeda per se. Um, 
it was the others that were involved in the in the whole you know melee for example you had the muslim brotherhood there so you know everybody says oh the muslim brotherhood is a friendly organization you know they're you know let me tell you what the muslim brotherhood did they were financing um everything going on over there for example they were literally and i've got video of it literally building large housing complexes apartment complexes to house al-qaeda fighters um so like in the thousands okay um i've seen them i got video of it um so they were, you know, you can think of them as financiers. <clears throat> then you had another group over there, a political party. Um, I won't go get into all the details on that, but basically um, you had a political party that was out front, you know, pretend to be the good guys, you know, the brokers of peace and uh, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, they were nothing more than, uh, you know, the the mouthpiece, the psyops, the uh, um, play the sleight of hand. You know, but uh, so all these cats were in bed together, you know, so basically this particular political party, um, Al-Isla, the Al-Isla party, um, Muslim Brotherhood, ACAP, um, the Houthis, and also we had ISIS there. So you had ISIS uh, facilitators there. In fact, the the guy that was a mastermind behind the coal bombing um, was actually there at the time we were there. And uh, he had a madrasa. um, His house was right across the street. And in his through his madrasa, he was uh, running a pipeline of ISIS fighters to include training them and arming them, and uh, you know teach them you know how to build IEDs, et cetera. So, so you had a lot of bad guys there. And the only other good guys, good guys that you had there was the Yemeni's resistance, which um, didn't do so good. Um, and then of course you had us guys, eleven of us um, with pale faces, you know sneaking around in the shadows hiding and stuff um fighting a little war or a little war on the inside on behalf of the emiratis um targeting really we were only targeting high value targets is what we we're going after um people that were uh influencers and that needed to go they were getting in the way on the world terror so um anyways so we didn't go after a coal bomber right away initially when we got the target list which spanned many countries um and it, it was extensive um i'll say the numbers and things for my book but uh basically when we looked at the target list the number one guy is like okay they want this guy um we had you know they go they told us why they wanted him you know we did our due diligence as well um you know the guy was very good at trade craft and street craft and mm-hmm. things like that very well trained had a bodyguard detail um and as we're looking at the list we realized hey this guy right here going way down the list was the coal bomber mastermind and he's right here and we were like so it wasn't you know there's was only a handful of americans on the team in fact there was only one two three four uh, four americans and all the others were uh french foreign legion moroccans etc and um so of course the americans were like no we got to get this guy first right for america <laughs> and uh and the client was like no uh that has to wait this is priority one so that you know they're paying the bills so you know we had to follow along with the program and so going down the list there was another guy that um so after we eliminated you know the guys they wanted initially as we started working way down the list um there was another guy he was um the way I can only describe him is he owned this large compound way outside of Aden. Um, and on the unnevis compound, he had the way I just called the monster garage, but basically it was a giant garage warehouse attached to his entire compound where he was supposedly building doors like for homes, right? Metal doors and giant wooden doors, you know, he's mm-hmm. Maker, <laughs> I've I've worked at a door making warehouse before. Yeah, so that was it. That was what they were supposedly doing, but actually, um, this was nothing more than a front um, for what he was really doing, which was building IEDs and things like that for um, Syria and other places. So, um, so we watched this guy for a while, and uh, you know, we used drone surveillance, um, helicopters at night. You know, so we kind of figured out what was his patterns of life. Um, the problem was getting to him. Um, all the roads going into the village where he lived was actually controlled by the bad guys and usually in depth. So they might have two or three checkpoints along the road before you even got to 
the, uh, the, the, the perimeter check road on the edge of the, of the town. So you had to negotiate a lot of checkpoints to get there. And you're not going to get through because they're going to search your vehicles, um, you know, and you're going to see right away what's going on and you're going to lose the element of surprise. Um, we weighed a lot of different options to include an overland uh, option from the backside through the desert. We could have pulled that off. However, getting out would have been another issue for us. Uh, we can get in, but then how do we get out? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of planning and thought went into it. And so we watched this guy on, uh, on the drone footage, uh, you know, look for looking infrared and others. And um, he had a, what he would do is every afternoon and evening, he would come outside and, and literally on the street, he had a couch on the, on the sidewalk and he would sit on the couch and people would come by and he was selling drugs. He was selling a, uh, what do you call it? A cock or cat. Cat. Uh, cat. I mean, um, and so anyways, um, you know, he was out there a drug deal and people would drive by and he'd, he'd exchange money and, and drugs for all this stuff. So, um, so we kind of had to figure it out, okay, you know, probably the best time to get him is at night while he's in bed. Um, we'd have to get into his compound. It was walled in. Uh, it was two or three stories high. I can't remember exactly. I have to look at the video again, the pictures, but uh, several stories high. Um, we don't know exactly which room he was in. We know we'd had to go in, you know, running and gunning and fighting, but uh, but we felt confident that we could get him as long as we could get into that area, um, into that neighborhood. So, um, so we... We kept developing the target and then finally, you know, it was decided, yeah, we get, we got to get this guy. And so one of the things, you know, needed to be done was that monster garage needed to be destroyed. And um, the only way I thought, the only thing I could think of was let's just freaking drop a nuke inside of it, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and portable nuclear weapon, you know, and we just destroyed this massive thing. And then, uh, and then simultaneously take down the compound with him in it. Right. Kind of a two for two for one. So I built this charge. So I, I I got pretty good at building IEDs. Now I've been you know working with explosives for thirty five years. Um, I was a breacher in the unit. Um, I did a lot of mechanical breaching, ballistic breaching, um, manual breaching, explosive breaching. Um, breaching is what I did uh, using explosives, particularly. And then of course, when I was overseas with OGA for nine and a half years, I breached almost every day or ex use explosives every day in some capacity or another. Um, so I'm pretty good at, it, I think, um, started doing a lot of, uh, started blowing up a lot of UXO and unexploded ordinance, you know, the U S government, mm -hmm. U S military couldn't always blow it up. They'd find IEDs and stuff, you know, and, and so, you know, they would bring it to my facility and go, Hey, can you get rid of this? Which I gladly did because every time I blew up something, I got more money for it. <laughs> so, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, I was having a good time blowing things up and getting paid for it. And uh, so <clears throat> I decided, okay, I, what I, you know, I just got creative with what I had on hand. So I, I the Emiratis issued me about 400 pounds of C4, all right, um, explosives, all the dead cord, everything I needed. They, they gave me a lot <laughs> and the brand new stuff and good stuff, good quality stuff. Um, and so I'm like, okay, you know, but. You know, to use explosives, you, you know, you can throw a whole, you know, bundle of explosives or something, and it's going to do some damage, but it's a lot better if you can make the explosives um, directional mm -hmm. and direct the energy, you know, a certain way. And you the can shape charge. Yeah, you know, or you can, um, you know, exponentially, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Multiply the, the, the explosive power of it by its use of its application and things like that manipulation. So, um, so I'm thinking, okay, um, I've created a bunch of different IEDs at this point. And so now I'm just having fun. Like, okay, what can I build that's kind of cool that will get the job done? That's probably never been done before. So there were in the yard that where we were staying in the compound, we kind of had this compound within a compound way in the corner that nobody knew about. That's where we were hiding behind the walls. We never came out when we did. Uh, we wore disguises, so we blended in, um, you know, and, and uh, so we kind of kept a low profile. But we were outside out of mind. And on the end that we were in, there was a, a basically a graveyard with probably upwards of 50 to 75 destroyed MRAP up armored vehicles that had been just IED left and right. So IEDs were a problem also for the Emiratis. And that's kind of why I think they lost their, um, their drive, the will to, to fight this war because they're taking heavy casualties and equipment loss. 
and of course that's why um you know we uh we uh we were invited so to speak to come over there and help them right because they didn't really have a special operations um capability so um so i'm looking at these mraps and you know there's pieces and parts laying everywhere you know because they're blown up and i'm looking at a coil spring and uh an mrap coil spring and this thing weighs about 80 pounds so I thought, well, you know what? What if I took this thing and I pack it with C4 explosives, right? So, and then I make basically a an omnidirectional mother of all hand grenades. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what I did without going into too many details um, of how exactly I did it, but basically I packed this um, this coil spring with about 26 pounds of C4, as much as I can mash into this sucker, right? And uh, <laughs> You know, and then run the, the priming, the dead cord into it and, and priming the whole thing and then taping it all up. And it was so heavy that now it had to become a two-man carry. You know, it was like a hundred and, you know, what, at least 105, 110 pounds, right? And, uh, you know, more for, more than I could carry, you know, <laughs> plus all my gear. So it became, so I actually put handles on both end, ends. And one of the guys that was with me at that time, um, without going in, his name was an American Green Beret, very big guy, 260 pounds, lean muscle, actually mm-hmm. Iranian Americans, uh, Green Beret medic. And, um, uh, like, guess what? Guess who's helping me carry this daggone thing? <laughs> you, <laughs> right? over here, yeah. So the mission was, um, ultimately the mission would have been looked like something like this. We were going to literally drive up to into the city, into the village, going to run past the, the guards, we're going to shoot them all up. And then uh, pulled right up to uh, first stop would have been right on the end of the building where the monster's garage was because he wouldn't be able to hear us because he was on the other end in the compound probably inside. He would have known we'd have pulled up and uh, we would get out and me and big guy, we're going to carry this monster charge, the burrito bomb, as you aptly put it, and put it center inside the, um, the monster shop and then prime it. So it's going it to be standing upright, just like, you okay. know, right not laying out upright yeah it went off the you know the coils would just disintegrate and you would get flying pieces of metal Shrapnel. going every direction right and so of course they were using acetylene torches and, and probably had all kinds of the flammables in there and things like that so you know for sure i would have wrecked this shop you know there's nothing to be left of it right and it would have had lots of holes everywhere um so we were going to place that i think i had a, a time fuse system on it for about a minute and 20 seconds I needed to give us enough time before the charge went off to go up the, the, the side of the building um, to uh, the west, northwest side of it. Basically, was the direction of travel. And then uh, we had to enter the compound as best as we could, as quietly as we could. And when the charge would go is when we would initiate the assault um, inside. Okay. So you get, you're going to get a large bang on the other end of the building. Of course, he's going to wake him up, but we're going to wake him up anyways, going through the compound, through the doors, probably shooting people in the way in. They were standing guard. So we needed to have that distractor plus destroyer, um, you know, at the same time, we're actually going to uh, do the assault. So that was the plan. That was the charge. Um, bad news is I never got to use it. <laughs> and the reason I didn't get to use it was the night we were going to go in and hit him. Um, the guy was out selling drugs, sitting on the couch. And... Some um, Yemeni's rebels, resistance, uh, resistance fighters, drove up and shot him in his couch and killed him. Like you know, so they got their job done, saved us a little trouble. But I thought it would have been exciting if we could have done it that way. Who knows how it would have worked out? But um, so that was the burrito bomb, right? And uh, like I said, I never got to uh, never got to use it, and unfortunately, I had to leave it behind when we pulled out. And I, the guys that got it with it was the Emirati military. Um, they probably looked at this thing like, Jesus Christ, what are these guys building? Like nuclear stuff, you know. But uh, I'm confident it would have worked. I know it would have worked. You know, 26 pounds um, in that area, um, you know, for sure, man. I mean, anything within 50 yards in any direction was in the kill zone for sure was going to get killed. Um, plus, the damage would have been quite a bit. You know, I think my calculations were considering the area. Anything within two, three hundred feet would have been destroyed um, significantly, you know. And of course, then there was the shock wave um, that went along with that. Plus, you know, you know, everything was kind of close together, so you would have had a lot of not only direct uh, pressures but reflective pressures, um, you know, mock stem. There's a lot of things that go into explosives that, uh, you know, combined collectively 
have a lot of destructive power. So um, it's not just the shrapnel that kills, it's the overpressure, the reflective overpressures. Um, this would have done a lot of damage, especially because it was in a kind of a confined area. So, um, but yeah, you know, um, that was one of several bombs. And I had, I had nicknames for everything, you know. Um, I had one called the Mother of Claymores. Um, what, what was that? <laughs> so this was... So this was actually, um, I'll actually use this charge. So what happened was we had this target and he was very elusive. Um, guy was very good in trade craft, never slept in one place, you know, it, more than once. And I, you know, he's always moving around, had a bodyguard detail with him. And uh, so it, it was hard to, tr okay, figure out where's he at, where's he going to go next? Um, what we did know was the airport in Aden had one international flight a day. There's only one aircraft in, going out, in and out. And we knew this guy was planning on flying. We just didn't know exactly what day. So the initial plan was let's ambush him at one of these gates going into the airport. So we actually drove to the airport. We actually went through one of the checkpoints with Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, but we were in an Emirati vehicle, so they didn't open the doors and look inside. They did, we, you know, they've been in a gunfight right there. But um, so we did daylight reconnaissance, checked everything out, kind of decided, okay, right here, this gate is where we're going to set up the ambush. Um, when he comes up, we're going to freaking dunce him right here. Um, so we had it all worked out. And it's like, okay, now how do we know when he's going to come, right? And like, damn, you know, um, you know, we don't know when he's going to get there. And then we started thinking about alternate alternatives, you know, well, maybe we ambush him on the road out in the desert way out here. And get them, you know, and then that turned into, well, you know, because he's in a vehicle, they're always moving. Um, what if we can't get them at a, uh, you know, a, set up a point ambush for this guy? And uh, maybe it's going to be a rolling ambush. And so then the next question came up, well, how are we going to do that? And so I had an idea. I said, you know what? I can build a bomb. I can build basically a bomb. And uh, what we do is we, you know, we, we wear our costumes. So we look like them and we drive up alongside his vehicle. And I basically hang on ex a large explosive charge off his mirror <laughs> directed into the vehicle. And basically, you know, I just destroy the whole them and the vehicle in it. And then the next question was, okay, <clears throat> well, who knows how to ride a motorcycle? Out of 11 guys, I'm the only one who knows how to ride a motorcycle. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm the guy who can ride a motorcycle, you know? And, uh, I'm like, man, you guys are from France. I thought you guys rode freaking yeah, mopeds. Right? Nope, 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 nope. And, you know, none of the Americans. And I'm like, okay. So it looks like I'm going to have to build the bomb and ride the motorcycle. I said, you know, I'm looking around. Everybody going, what the hell are you guys even doing here? Let's just let yeah. me do this by myself. You know, you guys go home and just give me your money and, you know, we'll get the job done. Yeah. So anyways, um, so what I came up with was this idea. So, again, you know, I'm looking around at uh, – you know, what kind of, what do I have? What kind of resources and materials do I have to, you know, to, to build a bomb um, or weapon? And so I had um, an ammo can, large, uh, you know, 7.62 ammo can. So I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I packed it full of C4. Again, I got about a total of about six pounds uh, packed in and around this can. Um, and then I thought, okay, let me use these MRAPs again. So I went over and I actually cut out some of the armor from the MRAPs, right? So the little small plates. And I put them on one side of the can and I put the C4 behind them. So basically I made it a directional charge. So when the C4 went off, all the armor went in one direction. Okay. Which requires some other things, right? You have to be able to, you know, it's called stemming, um, armor tamping. And I had, I had to help shape it. So it would blow primarily in one direction. I had to prime it a certain way. And there's likely what goes into, uh, charge construction, but, uh, but anyways, I know what to do. I know how to do it. So I built this, ammo can full of c4 and steel plates on one side same concept as a claymore mine right claymore has um c4 or composition b on the back side and it's got about 720 bbs on the mm -hmm. front side. i can just spray out um except mine were gonna be, be big metal plates coming at you not little bbs so now i'm like okay well how do i hang this thing from this guy's vehicle and I, so i got a big stiff piece of wire made like a loop around it so it's just a loop and all i had to do is loop it on the window on the on the um on the mirror, mirror. and then uh, so it, it becomes a, a question of a matter of timing as i'm riding up to him um i'm not gonna be able to manage the motorcycle and prime the system and hang it so that meant a guy behind me would actually be holding on the charge um 
it had a very short fuse on it. Um, I don't remember. I think it was like six seconds or eight seconds. And uh, basically, as we got a, as we were approaching, when I gave the guy the cue, he'd pull the firing system, and then I'd run right up on the vehicle. He would loop it around the guy's mirror, and then I would give it gas and pull ass down the street. There's no way the guy could roll his window down. Even if it was down, reach out with one hand and unhook this thing from the mirror. Right? That's a, yeah, that's an awkward what, angle. Yeah, It wasn't going to happen, right? And uh, we we play around it's like no way he's gonna get off of there and so that was the, the mission then it's like okay basically take him out in this vehicle no matter where he goes we chase him on a motorcycle we just kind of blend in try to scoot up like hey how you doing Mohammed? Yeah. Boom, blow him yeah. up. and uh so <clears throat> that actually never panned out so we had all these contingency plans i mean we went on we had about 10 different uh, um you know 10 different attack strategies for this guy for all contingency to include him bedding down in the middle of an Al-Qaeda neighborhood, one of these apartment complexes, right in the center of the hornet's nest. We're like, damn, how are we going to get in there, right? So we know that's going to be that's going to be Mogadishu all over. So uh, we were actually going to ask the Emiratis, who, by the way, didn't want any association with this. They wanted plausible deniability. It was like, hey, do you guys really want this guy? You're going to have to pony up a helicopter, yeah. uh, you know, to get us in on the roof because I'm pretty sure that's the only way we're going to get on there. So as as the mission, you kept we kept developing it, you know, based on you know his what he was doing, you know, the mission kept changing, you know, we kept trying to, we were always one step behind him. Now shit, now he's doing this, maybe he's gonna do that. Well, build a mission for that, and I'm not, he's gonna do this now. So um, everything was all over the map until finally we decided, you know, well, first of all, we need real what we call human human intelligence. We need somebody to tell us he's here right now. How else are we gonna know? Right. We can't just we can't be driving around looking for them. We're a bunch of white guys, you know. And uh, so we we got a source. OK. <laughs> and uh, the funny part was with the source, when they brought him in, it's like, OK, this is a reliable source, blah, 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 blah. He can help us. And then so now we're like, OK, we now he knows we're here. He knows what we're trying to do. If we let him go, what's going to keep him from telling on us? And then somebody came with this stupid idea. Well, let's keep them. Let's just keep them here until we catch the guy. And then we release them. I go, dude, somebody's going to go. Where did, where did Ahmed go? Yeah. <laughs> Mom, his wife's going to where's my husband at? Right. Yeah. This, too much, this is going to be problematic. And he ain't going to like it either. Right. Now we're going to turn him into a prisoner. Um, no, that's, that's not going to happen. Right. So we made the guy a bunch of promises, you know, you know, we, we did, you know, we said, look, man, he was from uh, Jordan. We said, you know, we'll get you back to Jordan. We'll make sure you got enough money to open that restaurant you want to open, you know, and have a new life, blah, 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 blah. You just work with us. Um, we're on the same team, and we'll work with you. Guy turned out to be really reliable. Um, so within, I'm going to say within 12 days, I believe it was now. Um, yeah, about 12 days. We get a call in the middle of the night. We're actually doing something. The vehicle's kind of screwing around <clears throat> in the middle of the night around, in our compound, and we get uh a, a phone call from this guy he goes hey i got him man i know exactly where he's at he's in this apartment not an apartment but this office downtown aiden um he just went in with all his bodyguards blah 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 they went inside locked the doors and uh and so he's he said i got eyes on i'll keep an eye on them let you know if they leave and then at that time the, the drone went up and the drone was up doing you know basically um we call isr basically and isr was basically watching and giving us real-time feedback so we 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 loaded up, got all gooned up with our you know our, our our costumes and stuff and guns, and we're rolling down the road. And we decided that uh, because the road and its pro- it was very close, and the roads were very narrow over there, and it very dark. Everything was dark. There was no lights. It's a, it's a war zone, right? A lot of damage, blowing up buildings, and um, it was just it was World War Three there, man. There's some zombie apocalypse stuff going on. So we're like, okay, we cannot roll down this road with everybody. Um, and we're going to have to make it a little bit more surgical um, and a little bit faster than we, you know, we would like. But we got to be quick and get in and get out because this is another hornet's nest. Al-Qaeda was literally walking up down the street. So what we did, we decided that it was five of us to do the hit. Um, four, the four Americans, um, and we actually had a major from the Emirati Army. He's a former special, well, he was special forces. Um, he actually went through the American Q course, special force qualification course. And uh, because the, the Emiratis really didn't want to have, they wanted to have plausible deniability. But we're like, look, we, you know, 
this, we need this guy, right? Because he knows where he's driving. He's familiar with the area. So we're like, look, he, he's just a driver. He doesn't get a gun. He just drives and drops us off. He's the Uber guy, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that's it. And the rest of us loaded up with all our, our weapons and explosives. And, and we left the other guy, rest of the element, um, probably about a half a mile and another on a main road parked off on the side is a QRF, right? In case things go really south, we could call those guys to come in and help us if we really need it, if they could even get in at that point. So we go rolling in, and uh, it was like a creep. I mean, we were, like, creeping down the road at three miles an hour because just the, the congestion, you know, it was dark. Um, roads were bad. There were people everywhere drinking chai, you know. Um, you know, it was really eerily dark, man. A little light here, a little bit light there, but you can see everybody out there drinking and smoking and they're hanging out. And Al-Qaeda's walking up and down the street with their AK-47s, and they're trying to look into the vehicle, like, who are these guys? But they can't see because the windows are tinted. And uh, it was actually an up-armored uh, SUV that we had. So um, we kind of snake our way down the road a little bit, and then uh, we rolled right up in front of the office. Now, the office was, um, if I can only describe it, it was probably 10 feet wide by maybe uh, 30 feet deep and it had a little alcove on the right side that kind of little recessed area that went inward uh, where he had a desk or something like that but uh, it was it was just a it was just a box for these guys and they were all in there and normally the bodyguards would during the day would post outside but this time they posted inside because it was dark so they locked the doors behind themselves and um they did what I know they do. They stood right behind the doors there on the, you know, guarding the doors on the inside. Right. So anyways, the vehicle stops, we get out, gunfight starts. First guy shot is the driver without a gun. So, <laughs> um, and so I get out, I run across the street and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to identify the door because they all started looking alike because they're all connected. So, but I, I pinpoint, it came in at a kind of a looping run, ran up along the side of it. And uh, I'm trying to prep the charge and my security guys were not with me. Um, one of the guys ran up the street and he was shooting people up the street. You know, I don't know where the hell he was going, but he was running up the street shooting people and getting a fight. And the guy, another guy that was supposed to be with me never left the vehicle other than, and I'll just say it, he was a SEAL. Um, he just, he basically didn't come across the street with me. And uh, he stood there from the vehicle and I asked him later, I said, why did you come across the street? Oh, my weapon kept malfunctioning. I go, well, you brought an extra weapon laying right there next to your seat. And how come you just picked that one up, you know? And uh, and he just stood there fighting from the car rather than coming across the street and pulling for security for me because that was their job. Because at this point, my hands are full trying to set up an explosive charge. I'm focusing on that, not on security. And so, but here I am by myself in front of this door. I can see people running out the doors next to me, you know, coming out on the street. I'm like, oh, shit, you know? Luckily, I was kind of in the shadows, so it was hard to see me. But, uh, you know, bullets are flying. You know, people are dying. Things are blowing up. And uh, and I'm trying to get this charge ready to go. I mean, it was pretty ready to go. But, um, you know, I just got to get the safeties out and get it set up. And I wanted to blow it into the building. So my first thought was, the hell was trying to blow them up. Let me just open the door. I had two French hand grenades. I'm going to say, just open the door, lob a couple of grenades in there. You know, and then when they're laying there like stunned mullets, I'll come in and just start shooting everybody and get it over with. You know, yeah. so I took the door and they locked it. And I was like, ah, shit. So I got to blow it up. So I put the charge out front um, as planned. And it was it was okay because the doors were these big metal doors they used. You know, these kind of typical in that part of the world. Um, it was probably about uh, eight feet wide. The doors total, two doors, but total of eight, about eight feet by, say, I don't know, 72 inches, 78 inches high. But it was it was corrugated metal, right? So all that became was a secondary missile. When that charge went off, it was going to take that door apart, and it was going to just send more shrapnel in that room. So basically, all they did was just give me more missiles to launch yeah. at as when I put at them, right? And so I, I set the charge. Um, I think I had a twenty second um, system on that, and my goal, what I was supposed to do, was run back in the direction the vehicles had come from there was going to be another vehicle waiting back there for me to get into but because the roads were so narrow and there's a you know lead was flying down it was really close range oh man i'm gonna run right into a firefight and probably get shot trying to get into this vehicle so i opted the last second to go the other direction to a vehicle parked up the street um so i turned to go in that direction and then the contingency plan was we were going to leave that the vehicle we infilled on was also going to get destroyed 
they want to leave that behind for whatever reason. I don't know. It's like, we can't bring this one out. And I said, well, we can't bring it out, but we're not going to leave it for them either. So I put an IED in the back. Again, another improvised uh, system that I built. Um, it's kind of funny. I won't go into exact details on how I built it, but let's just say this. It can, it, uh, it uh, involved uh, Nest Cafe coffee grounds, a um, little bit of gasoline, and a half a pound of C4. Okay. And so <laughs> it, it was a cocktail, but it got the job done, right? It was a basically an incendiary type of explosive. Like a, like a homemade thermite. Yeah. Something kind of close to that, but I had other in concept, the way it would work. It had other functions like a thermal, gotcha. thermal barrack weapon. At the oh, okay. And uh, also, you know, um, you know, fuel oil mixture and things like that. So anyways, um, so if I couldn't blow, if I couldn't pull the system on that, the other guy, there was another seal who was actually squared away, um, you know, and uh, he, he was running the mag 58 machine gun. His job was to blow, pull that system and get into the vehicle that was next to him, um, an armored vehicle. So that's kind of how it worked out. So my charge went off. It looked like a nuclear weapon went off. Man, I got the infra, I got all the flare footage of it, man. There was shrapnel shit flying everywhere. Um, you know, the guy's, Four guys behind the door well four guys behind the door but uh um and then you could see the vehicle id go off as well and uh it burned that thing to to the ground i mean there was nothing left to that that vehicle man it went really really well um so i used that particular charge that was going to hang from the guy's mirror also in front of the uh in front of the office so the next morning it was like you know this was all over the news and and uh, everybody's trying to figure out what happened, you know, and they thought they saw a guy that looked like Taliban, which was funny because he did look like Taliban. They described there was a Taliban guy running down the street, which <laughs> he pretty much looked like a Taliban guy, big beard. And, and anyways, um, and then uh, they uh, the 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 guys, the targets, um, what do you want to call him? His personal assistant was on the news and he was all wrapped up right bandages and stuff and he's like nah, 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 boo, boo, you didn't give him it's yeah. like well where is he then right yeah. <laughs> you know you're but he's standing like this you know and uh you know he's a mess and uh of course <clears throat> you know we can only guess what happened to the rest of the bodyguards and stuff uh, there was not a lot of space in there um for 26 or for six pounds of c4 and shrapnel coming through that door and the doors coming through the doorway so um so anyways, you know, I got pretty good at, like I said, building IEDs, um, you know, which was a lot of fun. Um, I, you know, I've always used explosives for surgical breaching to get in or rescue people. Um, I've used explosives to uh, get rid of unexploded ordnance. Um, I've used explosives for, you know, like um, demolitions and destroying things and cutting things. And uh, here's an opportunity for me now to use explosives in an offensive capacity to you know, take out, uh, take out targets. Um, so I kind of got to, got to do the range of, uh, explosive work, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was pretty exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, very cool. Do you, I can tell when you're telling these stories, by the way, you, you smile like a little kid. <laughs> do, you, do you, do you miss this shit? I mean, cause I remember you talk about towards the end of American badass and I actually just brought this up in the previous episode. How you talk about how you're in that convoy and American Badass is your book. I'll be in the description. If anybody's interested, go get it. It's you talk about, uh, I believe you're in a convoy and it kind of dawned on you. You're like, all right, I'm getting too old for this. You know, you're like, I, you know, I kind of, you're like, I want to see my kids grow up. Is there, how do those two balance out? Where on one hand, it's like, all right, you know, I've, I've made it this long. Don't keep tempting fate. And on the other hand, like, how does anything get your heart rate even going after like building IEDs to throw on moving trucks? Like, what do you, like, what else is, I mean, I, I mean, imagine going to the gym. I mean, imagine raising like a family is fulfilling, but in terms of just like, just like that thing that ignites your core. Like I, what I loved about being pre-med was that it was like one in a thousand kids got in and it was just a fight. And, what I like about the podcast is the chances of success are even lower and there's no guidance. Like I love it. So although they're different, I'm still like that part, like that part of my heart is filled, filled to the brim. It's just how fucking hard can you go? Like, do you, do you miss that? And is there like another part of your brain? That's like, I had my fill. Um, no, man. So I'm, um, 
I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie, you know, by nature. It's like, <clears throat> I'm always looking for the next challenge, right? That's really what it comes down to. What's going to get me going again, you know, get my heart rate up, you know, give me that adrenaline dump, get those, you know, endorphins and serotonin and dopamine. Yeah, still that alive. Kind of, you know, that natural high. Um, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like, for example, certain dogs, I use canines because, you know, as you know, I've got... 20-something years as a professional canine trainer. Um, every breed, you know, for example, um, greyhounds, they love to run, man. It's just in their DNA. They just got to run. Uh, Malinois, you know, I've got a bunch of Mal Belgian Malinois. They just got this drive in them where they have to work. They got so much energy. They live to work. Pit bulls, you know, they they live to fight, not because they're vicious, but it's this gameness that, you know, it, it just this drive not just to keep going and going and going. It's a sled dogs, you know, they just want to pull, pull, pull. They're not good for anything else, but they're sure good for sled. So, you know, and human beings are like that too, you know. We all have some internal drives that we're born with. We're all different. Some of us, um, you know, are B-type personalities. Some of us are A-type personalities. Some of us are natural warriors, natural leaders. Some of us are just followers. Um, you know, some were, some people are, you know, were born to, you know, to be a baker and, you know, some were born to be, you know, freaking criminals and some were born to be soldiers. Um, uh, we all have this thing about us, um, that, uh, they, that, that make, that gives us this drive, you know? And, um, for me, it's always been a soldier because I grew up in the army. My dad was in the army for 20 years. As soon as I graduated high school, he retired. I went right into the army too for 20 years plus, another nine years working for OGA. And then, um, you know, and even my son now, he's been in for 10 years as a Green Beret. So, you know, but it's um, it's, it's the culture I grew up in that I was used to and anything outside of that was abnormal. Um, being in a warrior culture was normal for me, um, partly because I grew up in it and partly because I think it's just in my DNA because I'm not just a soldier, you know, I'm a fighter, man. I'm a professional boxer, martial artist, kickboxer, you know, I've, um, I've always been a warrior and always practiced the warrior arts and even explosives is one of those arts, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and I like it. So, you know, I was on the set with stars and stripes with Chris Kyle, the American sniper one day. And uh, when I first met him, you know, I didn't realize he wrote the book, American warrior. I'm an American sniper. And uh, we were talking about, it. I go, man, that's pretty impressive, you know? And, uh, and um, you know, we, you know, and over time, you know, there's a lot of comparative analyses, if you will. You know, Chris Kyle killed, you know, 150 guys, whatever the sniper rifle. I'm like, I kill that many in a day with just freaking a mortar, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know, one rifle to get these kind of guys one at a time, and I just wipe them out in mass, you know? And so I've always had attention for, you know, like, this should get rid of all them at once and stop, you know, Wednesdays and Tuesdays, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, but where do I find my high? You know, I got to always find something else that stimulates me, whether it's business development, you know, performance coaching. Um, that actually, that's one of my passions. As you know, yeah. me and Joe, Ted, I, you know, we've got tier one performance coaching. Mm -hmm. and really, honestly, um, of all the exciting things I've done, this is one of the things that really excites me more than anything, man, is coaching people to be better versions of themselves. And um, really? yeah, and I know it, it's no kidding, man. And, and literally, man, we're coaching people, around the planet man i mean i, I mean vendors where was the last one el salvador um india you know asia australia africa you know it's great you know europe um you know to connect with all these men around the world and some women but mostly men um around the world and get to know these people and 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 then teach them things to make them better people you know and and make some uh you know, it makes their lives better. It's really, really fulfilling for me. Um, so I do get that. That's my challenge. That's actually a passion of mine. All the other stuff, I still enjoy it. If somebody walked up to me right now and go, hey, hey Comstock, listen, man, I'll pay you a million dollars if you go to wherever for next year and kill bad guys. Are you in? Uh, yeah. You know, if it's if they're real bad guys, I'll probably go do it. You know, it's yeah. not about the money. It's just, you know, getting to punch somebody in the face one more time. Really, you yeah. know. You know, and, uh, you know, some guys, and let me just kind of keep on going a little bit down this road sure. a little bit about, you know, stress of combat and PTSD and all this stuff, you know, um, you know, people ask, you know, do I have PTSD? And 
And I'm not ashamed to admit it that I've been diagnosed with severe PTSD, but I can tell you it had nothing to do with shooting people in the face. Um, my PTSD had to do with, you know, seeing all the innocent people get hurt, you know, women and Talked kids. about that, yeah. That's kind of what's, you know, traumatizing, man, more than, you know, shooting a bad guy, you know. Um, I sleep good at night because of that. That's the bad side of it. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy and I'm not, you know, lusting for for blood and killing people it's not like i'm a psychopath you know um you know it's just that uh it's like boxing for example you know as a professional boxer some people frown oh my god it's a blood sport how can you go in there and beat on somebody and get beat up you know it's oh my god but what they don't understand is a boxer doesn't go in there with a gun to his head he goes in there because he wants to do it he enjoys it's also an art he doesn't mind getting people. And so that's the kind of that's the kind of soldier I am. I wasn't forced to do this. Um, I knew what I was getting into. And so I have no problem with it. I actually enjoy it, you know. And so so what? Does that make me a sick individual? No. That just means I'm really good at what I do. And thank God I like it because somebody's got to do it. And so, you know, I don't have these issues with uh, you know, combat stress and all this stuff, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder disorder because I got into something I wasn't prepared for. And, oh, my God, how do I live with it? I don't have those issues. Uh, I'm not knocking guys that do. I'm just saying I don't have those issues. And uh, it doesn't frighten me. I'm not afraid of it. It's not because I'm, you know, because I'm, and I got to, you know, so we got to clear something up here, right? There's a whole big difference between being fearless and courageous and confident, right? So the fearless guy is the idiot that doesn't know he's in danger, still goes and does something, right? You don't want that guy. The courageous guy is a guy in spite of his fear that goes ahead and does it anyways, although he's still fearful. That's the guy that's usually going to come out of this thing with PTSD. The fearless guy is going to be like a psychopath, like, what? If he survives it, right? I'm the the guy on the other end of the spectrum. I'm the confident guy. I know what the consequences could be. Um, I know what I'm doing. And in spite of all that, it's not because of my courage that I got to go in and, and, and meet the threat. It's because I enjoy meeting the threat and doing my job because I'm really good at it. It's just like boxing. I don't go into boxing ring and box hoping that I don't get knocked out, you know, and I just finish the fight. I go in with the intention of winning, mm-hmm. right? And uh, because I enjoy the win, not because I'm fighting out of fear or because I'm scared or anything like that. And that's the kind of same thing with being a soldier. At least for me, it is. And it's not, it's not, Actually, that's not, not the norm across the board for most men. Um, and this is why we have high rates of suicide, PTSD. Not saying they're weak, just saying yeah, sure. the coping mechanisms are different. Okay, they're at, for it could be genetic, it could be, uh, you know, through their value systems, how they were raised in society. There's so many other variables, right? And I can't even go down the list. And, and I'm not a psychologist to, to even really speak to that. I'm just talking about myself right now. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, I would go in a minute. You know, I would, and I would think about it. The only reason I would think about it is because I have a wife, I have children, um, I got responsibilities, I got, you know, I got lots of things that need my support, businesses. Um, there's a lot of things, but again, I'm confident enough that I can go down range and do the job, get paid, and come back whole. You know, and sometimes yeah. I do that. it's like I got to go back and take another drink out of the well, just one more drink. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be right back. Yeah. Yeah. No, you've, t- you've talked about that. Yeah. The fearless guys, you're like, that's, I mean, I guess that they'd be useful fodder, but I mean, you, you need to have that feedback mechanism that says, no, 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 no. Don't run out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you've talked about the guys, the courageous guys, right? It's, it's, you know, it's like, can you be brave? What's the quote? Can you be brave when you're scared? That's the only time you can be brave. It's like, by definition is to be like, fuck that. But you just, you know, you nut up and go do it. And then, um, and then you talk about like, being a psycho you wouldn't be if you were a psychopath i don't think you'd be alive i think i think you could probably rise up to like delta or something because you would just you know you'd always be rising to the occasion but there is a there's a self-selective natural selection that would go on you just through one of these firefights over decades you wouldn't survive and it would be because of right complete lack of fear which again is not good you got to know, like, there's a lot of tracers going right now. Like, now it's not the time to run. Yeah, you probably yeah. wouldn't be alive. When I was in the unit, I remember a long time ago, man. We were all in the squadron bay one day, and we're just hanging around, bullshit, you know, talking. And uh, the question was always, why are we here? Why did we get selected? You know, why are we different than anybody else? Yeah, physically, we, you know, sure. we need 
met the physical standards, what, and which we don't know what those standards were. We just know that physically we made it through. Um, but we know that, for example, selection is not just physical. It's, it's actually much, there's actually a lot of um, psychoanalysis that goes on with the psychologist um, before and after and during. Um, they're looking at our, you know, how we think, um, you know, our, our, you know, how do we, you know, negotiate problems um so many things right there's things that we don't even know what we don't have no idea what they're really looking for um as far as psychology goes right because we all stood there we look at each other go well you know we're different sizes different physical attributes um different backgrounds um why are we all what made us different than everybody else that we were here i remember one this one guy's name was mitch he goes i know what it is and we're like, what? What is it? He goes, because we're all controlled psychopathic killers. <laughs> and, I thought, <laughs> and I thought, that's a pretty good way to put it. Controlled psychopathic killers. I wouldn't say psychopathic, but, you know, definitely yeah. controlled, you know, which means, uh, you know, again, it goes to what I said earlier. Um, you know, we knew we were confident what we were doing. We were very uh, methodical. Um, we were very calculating um, in our approach. Um, we didn't fight out of fear and we didn't fight out of uh, recklessness we fight out of confidence and um, confidence in ourselves and confidence on our, to the men to our left and right. You know, that's what got us through the fight. And, uh, but there were some, there's some things that we don't know what they are, but we know they're there. Uh, they just won't tell us because they yeah. don't want the cat to get out of the bag. But apparently we all have some type of special attribute that, uh, that gives us that edge that they're looking for that apparently um, most men just don't have, because if they had it, um, the so unit he, would be very much it would be special it would be yeah. that would just be yeah. the military i mean there's there's been selection courses where one guy has made it three my course three guys out of 110 made it uh finished you know and so um you know out of the entire army system you know 100 guys 110 guys get selected and three guys get selected when it's all over like whoa that's fucking nuts yeah, and so and like when i went through you know i'm i was just out of the age sick i had four years i was an infantryman as a scout um had no special skills except i could dig one hell of a foxhole and fill it back up <laughs> in record time uh, <laughs> i could clean an m16 like poo you know in three days under a tree yeah. three days yeah under three <laughs> uh, those are my skill sets you know and uh, that was as good as i got you know that's all i knew i wouldn't arrange it wasn't a green beret but uh but I made it through um, right alongside of guys that were Rangers, guys that were Green Berets, guys that were helicopter mechanics, guys that were just linguists. It's like, what is it? You know, it's not because we got certain combat skills. It's yeah. something else than that, right? And um, and so, you know, the saying goes, uh, the unit doesn't pick the best man. They pick the right man. Yeah. I don't know what that right man is. but um, And you never learn out when you're in it. it it's so it's that's just high that's just beat that's classified it's the best kept secret in the military man the selection process is the best kept secret they clearly fucking the recipe works the secret recipe works you could g2 and somebody could tell you okay this is what i did every day this is how fast i had to go and so if you can go as fast as i did do this every day then you should make it no because at the end you still got to face you know the murder board which is yeah. a lot of people, including psychologists, and they're going to tear your brain apart, man, and see yeah. what's, you know, what's inside that skull of yours. You've got to get through that. And then it yeah. doesn't end there. It continues on when you go through OTC, another six, seven months. When I got to finally got to the squadron after all this selection process, uh, I remember reporting to the sergeant major, and the sergeant major says, welcome to the squadron. Um, he goes, I just want to remind you that selection is a continuous process, and if you can't give 110% every day, we don't need you. That's a damn yeah. Uh, but yeah i mean you got because even if you do x y and z and this is what i did to get in if their selection process is i would imagine it's more because like you said we all look different we all fucking light keeps cutting out like we all have different like skills different clearly they're not going for a cookie cutter just like 3d printing stamp they're going for a mosaic which means that what you did might have been perfect because this one puzzle piece that slot was empty at that time or a guy was getting ready to retire and they, they see Tommy or they see fucking Miguel and they go, he's got it. Well, now if Miguel gets in and he goes, this is what I did. And I go, I'll fucking do that. Well, they don't need the spot anymore because they just filled it with Miguel. So it doesn't apply. It's not. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. You, you don't know. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, I think it, I think it's something innate in me. 
Um, and some guys that, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're just of the, we're just, we're just natural born warriors, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, but not everybody's like that, but so do, how do I find my high? Like I said, I do other things, coaching, um, business development. I live in Bali, as you know, I also live here in Florida. Um, and actually that's the other thing It's like, I've been in Florida now for almost two months and I had a really good time here. Myself and Joe ran a training program for some clients that came here for 60 days for the Jason Bourne experience. So every day we're just doing the cool guy stuff. We're going to the gym, you know, we're swimming, we're, we're knife fighting, we're, you know, picking locks, we're doing high speed driving, we're shooting. I mean, don't get tack dogs. I mean, go on and on. So every day is fun, man. Yeah. You know? And, uh, but after 60 days, I'm like so burned out from this that I'm ready to go to Bali, man. I need another change of pace, you know, and uh -huh. I'll go there for a couple months and it's kind of cool. Get and burned then, out. You come back to the U.S. So I'm always looking for my next, my next, uh, my next high, you know. And um, so it's what it, you know. It is what it is. And I always tell people I'm like a shark. If I stop swimming, um, I'll drown. You know, I yeah. stop. I have to. I have to keep moving, oxygenating my gills. You know, and uh, it's true. And I just have to keep going and going and going because as soon as I feel, as soon as I get sedentary, like most people, basically, it's you know, it's um, it's almost like the death knell, man. You're gonna, you know, you die fast. It's a hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I went from like playing basketball in middle school to lifting weights in high school to pre-med in college. I took two years off after college because it's like right when my brother died. I have never been more miserable than when I didn't have to work and that went to graphic design, loved it. Now I'm at the podcast. I love it. Whatever I do after the podcast, I don't know. But when I slow down, I mean, I can see it in a microcosm. I take two days off every week. I force myself to because I'll, I'll I'll work until I'm dead. And first day is great. I get a lot of sleep and I'm like, oh, I needed that. Play some video games during the day. Don't go to the gym. I like it. The second day, the second day, second day serves a tactical purpose. And what it does is I start getting restless. Second day, I'll wake up. I don't sleep in. I don't want to play video games. And I'm sitting there like. And uh, but I'll take that second day off just to it's like a slingshot. I'll just start pulling myself back. And I'm like, I can start to feel like depression creep in. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And then I begin my week on Sunday with I clean my whole apartment for like two hours. I go to the gym. I listen to an audio book for like four hours today. This is my second podcast. I've still got shit to do after it. I can't not do this. It's not some look at me. I don't stop working. I don't know how to turn it off. When I do turn it off, I I feel like I'm going to die or I want to die. Yeah. What you've done is cultivated a, a lifestyle, a mindset. And so you cultivated a mindset based on work ethic, um, performance, dreams, you know, and you got goals and you're, you're committed to those, you know, you could do the opposite where like you have poor work ethic, you have no, you have no purpose, um, and suddenly every day becomes Groundhog Day. And you're just playing video games. You're, you're wasting time. And then that becomes the norm. And it's hard to get out of the norm. Um, you know, like for you, the norm is performing every day, you know, giving it 110%. And when you don't do that, that becomes abnormal and becomes frustrating after day two, day three. Yeah. Whereas for the other person, the norm is sitting on their ass, watching TV, playing video games, getting fat. And then when you force them to tell them it's time to work, that's so abnormal. It becomes, you know, it's, it's because it's not their lifestyle. So, you know, you have to cultivate the lifestyle that you want to, to live in. Um, and it takes self-discipline. It helps when your parents actually ingrain that into you too. Oh, yeah. uh, but you know, that's no excuse if they didn't, um, you know, we're all, you know, we all got brains uh, that set us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. So use your brain mm -hmm. and uh, go, you know what, this is what I want to do. And then commit to working at it. Right. Um, you know, that's how it works. So, you know, there's, unfortunately, you know, not everybody has that drive and that desire to do that. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, I really can't imagine not doing anything. I mean, if I had all the money in the world and I didn't have to work, I'd be miserable because, you know, Terrible. I, because, and I, when I say work, man, it's like, you know, is this work, like, for example, you're doing a podcast. Is that really work? No, that's a labor of love. Okay. And so it's something you enjoy doing everything I do in life, whether it's coaching or my security company in Indonesia, this is not actually work. It's a labor of love. I love yeah. doing this. So I never get up and I never go to work. I yeah. really go to work, but I, what I'm doing is basically, you know, doing my hobbies. Yeah. And 
enjoy doing. I get to talk to people and stuff all day and, and, and tell them my bullshit and, yeah. and, uh, and get paid for it as well. So that's not work. Um, and that's, but I can't imagine on living a life where, you know, every day I got to work and make somebody else rich and I got to ask them for two weeks vacation every year, you know, um, you know, and those types of things, it's like, damn, um, you know, and some people are forced to do that, you know, but, uh, that it's a, it's a choice at the end of the day, it's a choice on what you decide to do with it. And if you're okay with that, I don't have a problem with that either. That's your life. You free to do what you want with it. I'm just saying from a person, my personal perspective, um, I don't, I really haven't worked honestly since I retired of the army. I haven't worked a day in my life since then. The only time I worked was in the army. You know, they told me to dig foxholes. Dale had to dig foxholes, right? I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get out of that one. But since that time, I've been my own boss. And honestly, I haven't worked because um, everything I've done since then is because I chose to do it and I enjoyed doing it. Even last year, I was doing construction work for my friend here. Um, and uh, owns a large construction company. He needed some help putting in a 25,000 square, square foot deck. You know, he couldn't get nobody to work for him. Because everybody's getting free money from the government. They were happy sitting on their ass, playing video games, you know, jerking off, doing nothing. And uh, so he's like, could you give me a hand? I was like, yeah, you know, I'm here for the summer. I don't really have anything else to do. Sure. So I did, you know, and I went out there all day and I learned construction. He got me all kinds of license. I can drive every freaking vehicle on the planet now. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I got to actually kind of live the kid's dream. You know, I got to drive, yeah. freaking, you know, the Tonka trucks. But yeah. I got tractors and the forklifts and, yeah. you know, and the backhoes and shit, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, get to, yeah, you know, and so it, it was hard work. Um, I, I won't lie, it was hard work, but it was a choice and I enjoyed doing it because I got something out of it. And, uh, you know, I can now add that to my resume too, yeah. you know, and, uh, I was a, you know, construction worker. Yeah. You know? it's... But I never really, but I never really, I never really worked because everything I did, I, I volunteered to do, went into it knowing what I'm doing and, uh, and I just made the best of it and, and, uh, learned something from it, you know? So no, you're you're right. I I don't I haven't worked since October 2020 when I quit my job towards the end of t- October 2020. I think it was October 25th. I was working at a liquor store. That was the last day I had to work before I was fully funded for this. I haven't worked since then. I've driven myself, just run myself ragged, but it's not work. It's just I do what I love every day until I'm exhausted. Physically, I do get exhausted. You know, after the eighth hour of podcasts I'm doing, you're talking to doctors and you're trying to bullshit your way up with them. And yeah, your brain kind of, it's, I'll talk, I always talk to my mom at the end of the night and my brain's always like short circuiting and I'm forgetting my mom's <laughs> name. It's mom, M O M, mom, and, you know, and she'll be like, she'll be like, go to bed. But like, I have to do this. And like one day when I climb to the highest rung of whatever a podcast can be, and I know I will, I don't know how long it'll take me. Maybe it'll be next year. I think it'll probably be sometime in the 2030s. I'll get there. I'll fucking get to the top and I'll go cool. And then I'll go, what do I know nothing about? And it will probably be, it'll probably be something as obscure as like, I wonder how you do drive a bulldozer. And then like <laughs> by 2040, I'll have like Tommy's bulldozer incorporated and we'll do business with Caterpillar or some shit. But like it is because you have to do one or the other. You either sit around not working, thinking about how you probably should be working or you're working and although you're tired, you go, just keep going, just keep going. And then when you get to the top of the mountain, there's no greater joy, even if it's the, the year long mountain, or if it's just the end of an episode, the end of one day, I did two episodes today, you get to the end and my apartment's clean. I went to the gym, I crushed an audio book, did two podcasts and I get to the end and I'm just, there's no better feeling than like just looking back at the trail that you just walked up and you're like, fuck yeah, let's get some sleep. And let's go fuck this shit up tomorrow. And to me, like that is, that's bliss. What am I going to do with a billion dollars? Yeah. If I had a billion dollars, I would probably, I'd probably hire you and a bunch of other guys to come steal it from me. So I had to start over again. <laughs> like, you know, the, the perfect black op. And I wouldn't actually be able to blame it on you because you guys would do it so perfectly. I'd be like, don't kill me, but take all these gold bars. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd be like, let's fuck. I mean, Right. I mean, that's, I think you're in his footsteps, like Billy Waugh, who Annie Jacobson writes about in her book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. Guy like went over to Iraq. What? He was 72 when he went over. He's still over there. Dude didn't give, and it's because there is no ending. No. When he stops moving, he ta- he, he was in, he was in, and we'll wrap this up. I know we got to go. He was in, I think like, like Mac V. Sog. And then when he finished, he worked at a post office and he said that was the most 
not just depressing. He said the scariest time of his life. It wasn't fucking running behind enemy lines with Viet Cong. It was checking in and checking out every day. Right. Goes, oh my God, I'm in hell. And then one day he gets a call from some wealthy dude. It ended up being an OGA front. And he was like, let's fucking go. <laughs> like, and he's like, and then my life was reborn. And he did it for an hour, 50 years. Yeah. yeah, man. I don't know. But there might be people listening to this that are like, what the fuck are you guys talking? Like that's alien to me. And who knows? You know, maybe they're. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what they do, but maybe they do it well. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around it. I don't fucking. I don't even know how we got here now. Burrito bomb. Something about that. But uh, Dale Comstock. I'll put all your stuff in the description. Tier one performance coaching, American Badass. Go follow Dale's Instagram again. These last two episodes, I've been based off of Dale's Instagram. So go check out Dale's Instagram, and um. I got more stories. Than- I was about to say, yeah, no, we're going to schedule. We're going to get you back on the regular schedule. Let's get some more fucking Dale stories over this bitch. That's another good one. to line it up. Um, that I'm not, I got to write the books, but uh, I can give a, a nice little overview. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Dale Comstock, American Badass, the coolest man on the planet. I love you, brother. God bless. God bless America. Stay safe, everybody. Till